1: You might actually be the most derivative of one of all. I mean, Christ, the same house. Oh, maybe so. But you forgot the first rule of surviving a stab movie.
3: Never answer the... I'm bored. Wait!
1: And welcome back to Horror Queers. We're talking Fulvia. We're talking we are safe and all is well in our world. And we're talking
2: Julian fucking more and i'm joe and i'm trace and uh joe i've seen you rap
3: things
2: (laughs) (laughs) no i know no okay it'll make more sense when we talk about it but there's literally a line where this woman's like oh my god like you rap that yourself no uh, i've seen you rap things it's the funniest fucking thing i've heard all week Oh my god
1: it's so middle class white suburbia i died i died of cringe trace this is the, my ghost talking god
2: yeah All right, everyone we are discussing todd haynes safe and um this may i'm actually curious to see how many people have heard of this movie before because i know it's a it's more of an indie pick from the mid 90s but again when you see like i mean as you said julianne fucking more mm-hmm. this movie is awesome yeah it's wild it's absolutely wild also
1: we're not talking about the 2012 like heist movie of the same name so
2: hopefully you all watch the right one well also uh i'm probably going to call todd haynes todd salons many times in this episode so please forgive me and just keep correcting me oh god (laughs) (laughs) but why don't we bring in our guests so we can help pick apart this um i mean god this movie man Mm -hmm. um Everyone, he is a film professor at UC Denver, who was featured in the queer horror documentary Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street. He's also the author of the book The Revolting Child in Horror Cinema, Youth Rebellion and Queer Spectatorship. You may also remember him from our previous episodes on cruising and
0: female trouble. Please welcome back. Andrew Scale. Hey guys, thank you for having me. Uh, And these are not the couches I ordered. Black. (laughs) That would have been a better pick, actually. (laughs) It's definitely a more memorable line. My couches are literally trying to kill me.
2: (laughs) (laughs) This is my first time seeing this movie, so I wasn't quickly attuned to the iconic quotes from Safe. (laughs)
1: Well, interestingly enough, I mean, I don't know how well known this film is. The people who know it tend to love it. But it's interesting, Andy. The reason we program this in part is because when you came on cruising two years ago, you were like, if you ever do safe, you have to bring me back. And so lo and behold, here we are.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's one of those films that I don't get to talk about very much. Um, I think if people know this film, then maybe they like uh, Julianne Moore and they kind of backtracked her filmography and thought, what the hell is this? But it, it is a really fascinating film. It seems like a film that's made today in many ways. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was like, how often should I use the word prescient in this
3: recording? (laughs) Oh,
2: man. Like, well, because it's it's interesting. This film has been on my watch list for over a decade because I actually heard about this and read about this film in film school. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't one of the films that was on our screening list. So I got to read about it without ever having to see it. And I just never made that leap until this week. And I'm really happy that (laughs) once again, the podcast provides a reason for me to cross something off my watch list.
1: Yeah, I was actually worried that you might not like this movie. This movie is so slow and sad, and I'm not suggesting that you don't like those movies or you haven't liked those movies in the past, but typically, this is not what I would call a trace film. This is what I would call an Ari film.
3: <laughs> you, well, it's so
2: funny because I I wanted him to watch this with me, but I did not. Um, Sorry, uh, uh, Andy, Ari's my <laughs> husband. i uh, uh, but he didn't get to watch it, so I'm going to make him watch it soon, so I'll just watch it again, because, you know, it's a real feel-good movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but I-, I am familiar with Todd Haynes' work. Um, I actually... <laughs> what's really funny is, um, even though I had to read about Safe in film school, the one of Todd Haynes... Two of Todd Haynes' films were on our screening list, and one, of course, was Superstar the Karen Carpenter Story. Mm, of course. And the other one was I'm Not There.
1: Which, oh, interesting. Oh. Hmm. I... <laughs> I got to watch Far From Heaven. Yeah. Okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> my introduction to Todd Haynes was through Poison, actually. Oh, uh, see, okay.
2: Uh, I saw that after the fact. Like, that was mm. something where, like, when I was, like, uh, like, right out of school, I was like, let me go through right. some stuff because I loved Far From Heaven. I do mm. not love I'm Not There, but I also <laughs> don't give a shit about Bob Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's very much a case of, like, this is not for me as opposed to me mm. saying this is a bad movie. Right. right. But yeah, Poison, I definitely sought out. Um, oh, man. Uh, talk about Art House, though
0: yeah yeah if you guys ever want to do poison yeah call me back because <laughs> <laughs> that's a, definitely a, a horror film in segments oh
2: yeah i mean i feel like a lot of these well i mean what is uh haynes calls them like women living in houses movies but mm. a lot of his <laughs> a lot of these types of films that he does do have like horror elements oh to yeah them. And, you know when i was watching this i posted on twitter i was like hey Wes craven called safe the scariest movie of 1995 mm. and oh, boy i know going into this like, this is not a traditional scary, like in the horror movie sense, like it's a very Mm-mm. different kind of scary. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I am tempted to agree with Mr. Craven on that front. Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, interesting yeah i have a feeling we are gonna get a bunch of comments mostly on like the bloody post or something that'll be a this isn't a queer movie and b this isn't a uh, horror movie yeah. and i would disagree, <laughs> disagree on
2: both, on both. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually funny though because and we'll talk about this when we get to the reception but like the, the queer community had some backlash against this movie uh when yeah.
0: it came oh gosh i wasn't aware of that actually um Hmm. Well, I'm
1: curious, Andy, I mean, you, you said you wanted to pick this, so what is your connection to the film?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So I just wrapped, or I'm in the process of wrapping a class on queer literature and film, and um, we taught uh, Carol as um, my my Todd Salon. Yeah, I did it. I said Todd Salon's Todd Haynes' (laughs) film. You've you've inceptioned me, um, and I'm going to do it the whole rest of the podcast now. Um, (laughs) now, I I think this one, for how uh, sterile it felt, how unresolved it felt how Mm -hmm. little i knew about this character that i just spent two hours with and in normal ways that would kind of repel me or that would signify right bad directing but i know that it's doing something about the era and something about the place of woman in the 1980s and so so it's it's a film that's fascinated me and i i don't know that i have my head around it completely but that's that's what this podcast is great for right yeah we'll work it out yeah
2: (laughs) i'm excited to talk about I mean everything in this film because yeah, I, I I didn't find it as I guess abstract or um not not complex. I was gonna say confusing. I guess as maybe I was expecting it to be. Like you're right, mm-hmm. it is very ambiguous, but it's not. It's mm-hmm. a very linear plot. Although mm-hmm. I would argue oh, that yeah. like the first hour and the second hour do feel like two
0: almost different films but still together yeah because the location changes so much and so Mm -hmm. so much of the the beginning of the film was about that like i I call it like oppressive symmetry you know Mm -hmm. um the way that everything felt so stilted and antiseptic and then you get to this other space and i i think this is where i go back and forth on how this film feels about it's it's new Agey center you know right um that's that's the thing i'm still kind of rolling around in my head well and that, that that
2: is the thing though it's like i don't do y'all think the film takes a stance on it i
1: almost don't i feel like if anything haynes is in support of carol that's the julian moore character <laughs> yeah but like i i do think that the film sides with her in believing that she is suffering from something but i do think that you're meant to find that she's only moved from one bad place to another bad place
0: that, that's the part I'm interested in. I, I'm, I'm curious how much other people feel like it is critiquing this supposed, you know, s- space of safety for her that, you know, mm-hmm. that she finds. And, and, and on a, on a kind of watching this this week, I have thought, oh gosh, it's a lot more critical than I, than I thought when I saw it in film school, you know? Yeah. 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 I, I guess maybe. So. I mean, I, I like what you said earlier, Andy, where
2: you said it was, um it was like sterile. Mm. Um, And so to me, it's almost more of like a, an observational approach to this whole thing like you know what if you were a person that had this and of course carol is our blank slate sometimes like just completely like we don't know much about her she has no last name to... is white uh, <laughs> <I know. laughs> but it's it's a thing where it's like and again with this reception people were like well are you are you condemning it are we supposed to be happy that she's there and it's like, i don't know if we're supposed to be anything like this just Oof. is the choice she made and the film is just showing you It's it's very scientific
1: yeah i feel like it's less about what the film like i don't know that there's so much of an agenda in terms of the way the character arc goes or the narrative goes but i definitely feel like we as a viewer are meant to feel something about carol's situation at the end
0: yeah oh absolutely you know i think even though it's an observational style that's not devoid of you know p- politics either oh, the way not. that <laughs> the way that it encloses her in space the way that it fixates on this figure in the you know full body suit in, in an almost horror film kind of way i mean those are choices that he's making. And that's where I'm, I'm kind of reading, I guess, the ideology of it. Well,
2: I will say that. I mean, as soon as I, I finished in watching this the first time, because I actually watched it again today with um, Salon's... Oh, my God. Oh, my God.
3: <laughs>
2: God, just start over. <laughs> I watched it again today with commentary, and it was uh, Todd Haynes and Julianne Moore and one of the producers. And, but, like, as soon as I finished it the first time, I messaged Joe, and I was like, that was heartbreaking. Like, I felt... yeah. So devastated for this poor woman who doesn't have an easy way out of anything. Mm. And Joe, I think you're right. She's gone from one toxic situation to another mm. one. However, while I'm not like happy for her by the end of this movie completely, I'm happy that she is at least surrounded by people who are
1: validating her. Right. I mean, I I do love that the husband is played by Xander Berkeley. Yeah. Basically, just cementing <laughs> his status as shit husband <laughs> slash dude. <laughs>
2: Well, okay, okay, so so before we go into the film itself, let's mm. talk about how this thing got made, because I actually, mm. I really didn't know about environmental illnesses, so I, I knew going mm. into this, you know, she was going to have a disease, no one knew what it was, and it was, like, you know, detrimental to her body, so I was actually expecting a little bit more body-ish type things, mm. mm-hmm. which I guess is my, my body horror, like, coming out, but like, it, it's it, it's enough, and it wasn't a disappointment for me, but I just, yeah. like, didn't know how much, how based in reality this thing was.
0: I don't, Did either of you, if you've watched the trailer to this?
2: Yes, and it makes it look like a...
0: (laughs) A pathogen thriller, right? Yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so I think either, you know, everyone went in and then had those expectations subverted, or that Todd Haynes wanted you to go into this expecting something like that, and then to deliver you this instead.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was so funny. When I was trying to explain this to my husband, he was uh, was like, oh, is it a bug situation? Referring to William Friedkin's bug. And I would argue it's not exactly the same, because... That movie's very much marketing a killer bug parasite movie when it is very much about paranoid schizophrenia. <laughs> mm-hmm. Whereas at least the trailer for this is accurate to an extent, except it's just not really the um, thrill ride that trailer's promising you.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think this film teases you, like, this is the explanation, right? And when she kind of right. goes, and then... And then you realize that the ideology of this group is all fucked up and it's kind of Calvinist and weird, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, so so it's like you ultimately leave with no um, real resolution.
1: No, no explanation, no resolution. Mm -hmm. And then hope you feel good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) <laughs> but um, okay, so Haynes first heard about environmental illness in 1991 on a TV magazine program that referred to it as 20th century disease. And so he and producer Christine Vashon, and she's the one that she has her own interview in the Criterion Blu-ray, she's on this commentary, um, and she's, I think, worked with him on many of his films, at least through I'm Not There. But they interviewed organizations that advocate for people who have environmental illnesses, such as Response Team for the Chemically Injured in Atascadero, California, and The Chemical Connection in Wimberley, Texas, and... In fact, the monologue that Carol gives during her birthday party scene was based on transcripts of one of the interviews from Wimberly.
1: Oh, wow. Huh, that's interesting because that gets uh, referenced quite a bit in various readings of this movie.
2: Mm hmm. Uh, Haynes also did research, unsurprisingly, into New Age healing practices and was especially interested in the work of Louise Hay. So, This was my first time hearing about Louise Hay. And she was a big voice in the New Age movement. Uh, Her first book was Heal Your Body, The Mental Causes for Physical Illness and the Metaphysical Way to Overcome Them. And she eventually released a book in the 80s called You Can Heal Your Life, which was a huge bestseller. Got her on Oprah, all this other shit. But just a quick primer on this woman. So she described how in 1977 or 78 she was diagnosed with quote-unquote incurable cervical cancer and how she came to the conclusion that by holding on to her resentment for her childhood abuse and rape she had contributed to its onset she reported how it how she had refused conventional medical treatment and began a regime of forgiveness coupled with therapy nutrition reflexology and occasional colonic enemas oh <laughs> one of these things is not like the other. <laughs> I, would, I think maybe there's a thing where it's like stress like causes constipation, which therefore like exacerbates other health problems. I don't, I don't
1: know. Well, and also I think it's a cleaning out of the body, right?
2: Yes, very much so. So she claimed in the interview that she rid herself of the cancer by this method, but while swearing to its truth, admitted that she had outlived every doctor who could confirm <laughs> its story.
1: <laughs> i killed them they're in my trunk right
0: right
2: <laughs> around the same time so we're in the 80s now uh she had began began leading support groups for people living with HIV and aids which uh she called hay rides which immediately i'm kind of like okay well that's it um, okay. okay um okay. These grew from people in her living room to hundreds of men in a large hall in West Hollywood, California. Um, her work with AIDS patients drew fame, but basically, she was telling them that self love would heal their illness, and that mm-hmm. led to her book, "The AIDS Book," creating a positive approach. Sweet mm-hmm. Jesus, okay, yeah. yeah, Um It's it's a it's like she's still. Like, her books are still read today, and people swear by them, but it's a thing where, like, I'm reading specifically about this
0: AIDS book, and I'm like, um, this, I don't,
2: uh, like, I mean, like,
0: I I mean, it gets dangerously close to when she says that you may be exposed to AIDS, but only if you don't love yourself will you get AIDS. Oh,
2: boy. But that's the the thing. I mean, we'll we'll talk about this with this goddamn (laughs) Renwood place. But it's like, yeah, sure. Like, you know, you're offering a solution, but it's also like so self-blamey. And like, it's put so much on self-hatred. And it's like, I don't know. Again, that that ties into the queer experience more so than anything in this film for me.
0: Which is for me, the the overlay of this film is that even though it doesn't have any, well, it doesn't, uh, about a queer storyline, it's very much a queer film. Right, 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 right. And in so, case
1: people didn't know, Todd Haynes is queer, mm-hmm. and he was part of the ACT UP movement.
2: Yeah. Yes, yes. And that, his queerness will actually play a part into why he cast, um, so why he made the, the character, the, the, the cult leader of Renwood, uh, a queer man as well.
1: Right. Even though we don't say the word queer
2: or gay in this
1: movie. No,
2: and I think we only say it's either AIDS or HIV once mm-hmm. when they're describing him.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's uh, Claire who says, like, he he has AIDS and also, like, environmental sensitivity. And you're like, mm-hmm. oh, are those two things comparable? You're saying them in the same sentence. Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: well. mm-hmm. uh, but, but that retreat was inspired by a yoga retreat uh, at the Kripalu Center. And so, you know, he also got inspiration from 2001 A Space Odyssey and, the, and unsurprisingly, the Boy in the Plastic Bubble. Right, yeah. For the script, Haynes has said that the conceptual origin involves setting up barriers that prevent the audience from getting emotionally close to the character of Carol. Uh, He used political red herrings to make the audience trust certain characters at first, such as the leader of the Rimwood, uh, of Rimwood being a gay man. Since Haynes himself is gay, he thought the audience would expect the gay character to be trustworthy. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, adding to that too, you know, cinematographer Alex Nepomniyashi he suggested the book, the look of Red Desert to Haynes after reading the script, and together they decided never to let the camera get very close to any of the characters as a way to keep emotional distance. And, of course, emphasizing Carol's alienation by stranding her in cavernous interiors and on the margins of wide shots. And, Joe, this is something we were talking about too recently in our Patreon episode on Bones and All, where I said, you know, I had trouble connecting emotion to the characters because of how it was filmed in this kind of, like, distant way. But I would argue that in that case, it's less successful for me personally, because you're supposed to feel something for those characters and feel connected to them. Whereas I don't I don't think that's the point here or the purpose here.
1: Yeah, I would argue that it's very much the intention here that you don't connect emotionally with characters, even though you are desperately striving for that connection, particularly with Carol.
0: You know, I I think too. I mean, Carol doesn't know herself, right? No, like she she has, and I and I think that's what comes through because Julian Moore does a lot with just facial expressions. Oh um, God. in this film, the the scene where she has a pa- has a panic attack, it, it feels. Real, so I yeah I agree that it's part of the problem is that that she has so little self knowledge herself. <sighs> yeah, she's such a I want to say a
2: pitiful character, but I feel like that's such a, that's such a bad. Like it has such a negative connotation attached to it. But I wanted to like give her a hug for this entire oh, movie. Oh, sure. It's I mean it's a part of what Moore does with her voice, right? Because at first I was kind of like. Well, is that just how she sounded back then, and I'm just misremembering? No, no, no. no, no. She's very much tri- she, what is I think in, in the interview and the Criterion set, She's like, um, you don't put any weight on your larynx, and so
0: you talk it's, like this, which is so yeah. interesting. So I, know, I, I Yeah, I never thought about that, but that is absolutely there in her bre- breath. Her, it's that breathiness in her voice. Mm-hmm. You know that unwillingness to step forward and be heard. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and it's frustrating to watch. Yeah. But oh, it's absolutely. like, but I
2: also have such empathy for this character that I know nothing about.
1: Yeah, well, and then it becomes such a force when there's that one scene where the doctor wants to do a different kind of treatment than she's comfortable Mm. with. Like she she notices that there's a person spraying near the door where she's being treated. Mm -hmm. And it's the only time in the film she actually raises her voice and it Mm. stands out as a result because so much of the time you're just like, girl, you're so timid. It feels (laughs) like you're going to like a child could bowl you over.
0: (laughs) And and credit to Julianne Moore. I mean, you this could easily have gone kind of stepford you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um and, and it doesn't at all. You you see the kind of pain behind her eyes. It's really a fantastic performance. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, potential investors wanted, uh, Todd Haynes to replicate the elements that had
2: worked so well in his previous film, Poison, um, as we've already mentioned, but since this film was different in so many ways, (laughs) also (laughs) the fact that it's a singular story, it took a long time to find the funding for it, so they ended up with a budget of about a million dollars, uh, and they began filming on January 1st, 1994, in LA, and filming lasted for about six weeks, so... It eventually has its world premiere at the Sundance Film Festival on January 25th, 1995. And there were reports of people walking out of the theater, um, supposedly because they didn't understand the movie. Apparently, many critics at the premiere were mixed about the film, despite the fact that by the end of the 90s, many had come around to it and placed the film among the decade's best. <laughs> uh, apparently, the big film at Sundance that year was Harmony Korine's Kids, which took a lot of the, um, the, uh, the, the buzz and word of mouth away mm. from safe.
1: It's a very different kind
2: of, like, new <laughs> queer cinema. <laughs> very much. <laughs> uh, Sony Pictures Classics acquired distribution of rights to the film and released it in a limited release on June 23rd of 1995. It made very little money. We're looking at about five. It made, like, half a million dollars, basically. So I think this is right. definitely one where, I mean, I don't even know if it made any money, period, because it, I, it wasn't. It wouldn't have been a home video hit. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. No. But on Rotten Tomatoes, we're looking at 87% with an average rating of 7.4 out of 10. Metacritic's got a 76 out of 100. And Letterboxd users have awarded it an 8 out of 10. Nice. Okay. There we go. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, people love this movie now. And honestly, I think some people still consider it Haynes' best film. Again, Milo Tomatoes. I am very partial to Far From Heaven. Yeah. It's
0: only my favorite
2: film of two thousand and two.
0: <laughs> and isn't it interesting to you that that Far From Heaven is so much about the melodrama and the emotion, and this mm-hmm. is so emotionless, the you opposite. know? Yeah, yeah but, but I find that. Almost fascinating. dealing with
1: the same thing, right? Like the yeah. the oppressive weight of what it means to be a woman living uh-huh. in suburbia.
0: Right. Right. Well, and so that's the thing. So
2: okay. This is actually from the Criterion like essay that comes with the the disc. So it's uh it's called Nowhere to Hide by Dennis Lim. Um What he writes is, he goes, there are two types of films we've come to associate with Haynes. Essayistic anti-biopics of pop icons and cerebral riffs on the melodramatic genre that Hollywood used to call women's pictures. And he himself has termed stories about women in houses. So for the former, you've got Superstar the Karen Carpenter story, Velvet Goldmine, which is kind of about David Bowie, and I'm Not There, which is Bob Dylan. But in the latter, you've got Far From Heaven, this, and the 2011 Kate Winslet miniseries Mildred Pierce
0: and i would put carol in there too yes. probably came, that probably came out before carol was well, yeah.
2: he didn't write carol so i'm wondering oh. if that's maybe why mm. they're there i mean he did yeah and so i think the last thing he wrote was i'm not there he might have written some of mildred pierce i could be wrong
1: it's so weird though because when you i mean that's probably the deciding factor but also carol feels
2: like such a
1: tall yeah. film like it's so inseparable from the rest of these female fronted films yeah,
2: yeah. But um, all of his films revolve around the mysteries and traps of identity, calling attention mm. to the social and cultural processes through which it is constructed. Elusive by design, the typical Haynes protagonist is a blank slate, a vessel for meaning. Sometimes this means shape-shifting, a trickster figure, as with his Dylan and Bowie surrogates. And sometimes, as in the case of Safe, it means a person who seems barely to exist. And mm. coming back around then to some of the reception for this. So, you know, and I know you said you were kind of, you didn't realize that there was some queer backlash to this. So this is producer Christine Vachon. She does an interview. She goes, there were attacks from the queer community on both sides of this. So A, people were really mad that you were telling a story that is not really about AIDS, but is very much about AIDS. About AIDS. Yeah. And you're, it is about a a white woman and there's not a queer character in the film.
3: Right. So...
2: Their reasoning for that is, they said, "Well, we didn't want to, We 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 wanted to give the queer community a break since they were dealing with this on a daily basis in their actual lives. So we didn't want to do that." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then. There's a notion of positive images, and so she talks about how she made a film called *Swoon* with Todd Kalin that came under a lot of heat for depicting a gay serial killer. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that when our community is under such an attack anyway, and Joe, this is calling back to mind our *Basic Instinct* episode, um, right. how Ooh. dare you represent us, the queer community, on the screen in a way that isn't absolutely positive? And Ugh. to this, Fashan says, "The answer to that question is, well, what the fuck is positive?" Right. <laughs>
3: right.
2: <laughs> and how
1: it changes over time. Right.
2: And it does, but it's also a thing. And look, I mean, like we, we were as a community we were in a very different space politically in 1995 mm-hmm. than we are in 2023. Oh sure. <laughs> so I, I get that it's you know contentious, but this looking at these two different reactions, it's like, well, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. People are mad because you don't make this queer, but then people are mad because mm-hmm. you you do something queer that's about AIDS. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I don't I, mm-hmm. I don't know what you want them to do. <laughs> Anyway, but yeah, so uh, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of all I have for production because I think, again, most of this is going to be going into analyzing and picking apart every detail of this plot.
1: Yeah, because it is exquisitely made. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: All right, so we open from the point of view of someone driving a car through suburban streets at night, and we see that we are setting this film in the San Fernando Valley. It is 1987. I'm curious, Andy, I... I don't know if this year is distinctively important i feel like this is sort of mid-range of the aids crisis am i right
0: yeah i agree with that
1: okay
2: i'm gonna tell y'all um you're gonna hate me i on my first viewing i missed the subtitle saying it was 1987 (laughs) <laughs> so i didn't catch that till i watched it the second time and i was like oh okay this makes a right. lot more sense now
1: <laughs> yeah because i i feel like if you because i'll confess i've seen this film once before and i didn't catch it either so i definitely thought that this was set in 1995 and then i didn't understand why people were like oh this is totally like about aids yeah mm. Okay, so we're introduced to Carol White, who is played by Julianne Moore. And I I love that our introduction to this character is that she is having dispassionate sex with her husband, Greg who is played by xander berkeley (laughs) and we are in the middle of cookie cutter suburbia so they have clearly sort of just moved into their house like we're still buying furniture and arranging pieces but they also have like neighboring houses that are still under construction and they haven't put in
2: the landscaping the score for this movie is so interesting because it's very synthy Mm -hmm. but the score i mean over the opening credits we're just on the POV of a driver going down this, this suburban street, but the score almost sounds like it's out of a science fiction film. Mm-hmm. Well, I won't lie. The visual aesthetic of this, we, we said it's very
1: sterile. It's a little bit desolate depending on which half of the film you're in. This to me is giving strong early David Cronenberg vibes, mm-hmm. ala Brood, but then mm-hmm. also later David Lynch vibes, a la Mulholland Drive.
2: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I can see that.
3: Yeah.
1: I also just have bow makers on the brain. So.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, so we, we get a sense of what Carol's daily life is like. She goes to jazzercise class and we learn that she doesn't sweat and all the other women are very jealous of her.
3: OK, but <laughs>
1: what what is that,
2: by the way? Is it just is it just supposed to be like she's perfect?
1: I think we're meant to believe that it's like, oh, look at her. She is the pinnacle of hell. She's mm-hmm. aspirational for these yeah. other women. Yeah,
2: I agree. I would argue that not sweating is not healthy, but it's not
3: healthy. (laughs) You need
2: to sweat. It's part of
3: what
1: your body does to regulate temperature. (laughs) She also gets perfunctory calls from her mother. And I was just like, Oh boy, this is, um, we do not have a close relationship. We will never meet this woman, but I love that. We're only hearing the one side and you're just like, Oh, I don't think this is a, this is not a great mother daughter combo.
2: (laughs) And we're already getting these wide shots. I mean, this cow house is cavernous. Um, Oh, it's And immersive. she is just
1: alone.
2: <laughs> I was gonna say, is your house porn meter going off, Joe?
1: i mean it would be except that i'm just like it might as well be a museum like i'm mm. surprised that we don't have plastic wrap on the furniture
0: <laughs> and there's so many um sort of natural things remade in ceramic or plastic mm-hmm. you know and and so that seems to be part of that aesthetic too it feels dead in a lot of ways my thing
2: was very much i was just like why is there not a tv in the living room and it's like oh right mm-hmm. because back in the day the living room was just for that for living and talking mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: it was for entertaining trace
0: oh uh, mm-hmm. god
1: Yes, and her other responsibility, because she is a homemaker
0: (laughs) not a housewife (laughs) she's
1: not a housewife she's a homemaker but she is supervising uh things like the kitchen renos as well as yes making sure that that new furniture is up to spec
0: i mean it's interesting i I, you know there are other directors that use this sort of like deeply symmetrical design think of like wes anderson but there's something about this that isn't quaint or adorable the way it's not cute it's not it's not dollhousey it's it's something Mm -hmm. else it's, it's it's just sort of boxy and um, uh, not meant to be lived in.
2: Yeah, right. I mean, I, I feel like I could smell the doctor's office waiting room as yeah. I watch all these scenes.
1: Yeah, it, there's actually like a kind of eau de formaldehyde coursing mm-hmm. yeah. over this entire, <laughs> right. especially the first half of the film. Yeah.
0: yeah, I guess that's what I mean when I say dead. It's like dead, but preserved, you know? Yes, yes. You, you know what film this also looks like at times is, oddly, Edward, Edward Scissorhands oh yeah yeah and yeah his, the cookie cutterness co- of mm-hmm, it. absolutely and he has um people have uh decor in their house that looks like a tree but it's made out of plastic you know and mm. they're stapling the snow onto their roofs uh kind of re- or for an artificial reproduction of the natural
2: right uh, I, I, i'm a sucker for movies that are like i mean like, this movie isn't really well like, it is a little bit satirizing suburbia but like mm-hmm. I, i'm a sucker for oh, that for that type of uh that type of genre in film i right. love that kind of shit i mean you've already mentioned yeah. stepper wise but i
3: love that mm-hmm.
1: yeah i think the difference here is that it's not going for the kind of gut punch where you laugh and then feel bad about it this is very mm. much a hey do you live
0: here i might be in danger <laughs> right right
1: <laughs> so uh carol goes for lunch with her friend linda who is played by susan norman
2: so th- this this woman was supposed to actually t- t- uh-huh. haynes wanted her to be carol because oh. she was in poison and it wasn't until someone sent him Juliet Moore that he was like, oh shit, it's her.
3: <laughs>
1: oh shit. Uh, sorry, Susan, we're going to have to downgrade you to best friend status. <laughs> I will admit, I misconstrued this scene when I was watching it. And it was only when I read a think piece about the film that I realized that, yeah, I thought that she was having an affair with somebody and he like dropped her and wasn't returning her calls. And then it's like, oh no, she's now talking about her brother who has died from AIDS. We're just not saying it.
2: He's a bachelor. Yeah, Mm -hmm. this movie, I I am proud to say that I did pick up on that on my first viewing Mm -hmm. of this, but because I wrote the lines down specifically because it's like it wasn't no it, because it, it was which just no that's what everyone keeps saying and th- mm-hmm. that's what got uh-huh. it because it, if he was openly gay ding, ding, ding. the right. first thing people are gonna say is did he die of AIDS right. and so yeah 100 percent. but I, I I admire and I, I, a little bit surprised by the fact that yeah, we don't even say it in this word. you have to be an attentive viewer and like read between mm-hmm. the lines of this scene right. mm-hmm. and to pick that up because it does not make it explicit
0: Nope. And it's true to these characters too, right? They they would use the euphemisms mm-hmm. uh, to talk about their brothers, mm-hmm. right? Well, and
1: and even this is so I don't want to say dispassionate, but kind of removed. Like she's clearly like she's feeling something, but she's not hysterical. She's not emotional. She's not crying. And then it's immediately followed by, "Oh yeah, you know, like I think I'm gonna have to sue my contractor."
2: <laughs> well but that's the thing is i mean like, this, this is supposed to be her best friend supposedly in this film right and there's just there's nothing there's no, there. connection. There's yeah. no connection there's no connection whatsoever not not
1: like oh wow like julian moore's really bad at connecting with this other actress it's like no do these women even know each other or do right. they just have a standing lunch date like they don't know anything about each other
2: well i mean i, I would argue that linda does not really give a shit about anything going on really like really in, in carol's life as we will start to see as if it, as it comes an inconvenience to her
3: mm-hmm.
2: but there's something just about like this the min, min, mundanity is that, is that a word mundanity mundacity Sure, I'm just about yeah, their mundane, the mundane aspects of their life, yeah, and it's just like, like so, so much of this. Like, I didn't find find this movie boring at all because I was just kind of fascinated by everything that was happening. Even though Joe, as you said, this is a slower film that doesn't really have a ton going on in terms of like action and plot, but I just found all of this so fascinating because yeah, it's like. God, her life sucks.
1: (laughs) Well, every little detail feels important, right? Like, I was trying to cull down my notes because, as always, I took too many. And it was like, okay, well, we're not talking about the movie for four hours. Let's try to come in under two. But... I found that I fixated a lot on things like the radio mm-hmm. announcements or the the TV infomercials that she was hearing because the film loads a lot of interesting background about not just what's happening around Carol but also things that appear to be commenting on her depreciating health over the course mm-hmm. of the film. Mm. So like the next day she's, you know, she has this fall at home while she's trying to retrieve her telephone book and she just sits there and we hold on her for a long take. This movie is basically long take the movie (laughs) and there's chaos with the renos in the kitchen but the radio is very casually having this debate about euthanasia and i'm like okay so we're talking about death we're talking about dying and we're also doing like a process of rebirth with the kitchen like we're going through something to become something
2: different at the end you know what? Also, though, my issue with this movie is it has a real vendetta against milk because.
0: I <laughs> well, knew you were going to bring that up. I mean, she she is a
2: milkaholic. Um, so is Trace. So am I. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was so funny because you know, I caught her drinking milk the first time Cause in the scene with Linda. I was like, "Oh, that's interesting. She's drinking milk instead of whatever the mm-hmm. fuck Linda's drinking. That's a very interesting choice." Yep. And then she asks for milk later from uh, from oh my god f- from Fulvia. And then it 's like, oh, she 's allergic to fucking
0: milk, <laughs> and milk mm-hmm. is really bad for everything. I'm like, I know I just yeah. want to drink it in peace <laughs> but you know, sure if I was teaching this film, this is where I would stop and talk and like ask my students about like why milk why is, why is this the, the beverage that she's you know um, talk, that is toxic to her What's it what 's it doing for the story i mean mm-hmm. it's kind of interesting, right because I think that she is as allergic to whatever toxins are in the air as she is allergic to uh, heteronormativity um i really? think she she doesn't have children of her own she to marry yeah. this man she had to become a mother she had to mm-hmm. take on his kid and and so and the way that um her house and her status seems like those those are sort of toxic to her um and her sense of self so i think there's something to that it's it's, it's motherhood that is part of her um part of what her body's rejecting mhm suburban yeah. housewifeness that she her body is rejecting <laughs> It's a housemaker, Andy. Yeah,
2: housemaker, yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh,
2: it's, uh, I think it's really important, too, that she. she it's, a, it's a stepchild and not her blood child. Because oh,
1: it's 100%. A... So important.
2: And I don't mean to insinuate that, obviously, like, you know, oh, if you're a stepchild, you're not a real, like, child, like, because you're not a blood relative. But I think for the sake of this film... For this
1: that... film, it's making a commentary on the fact that, yeah, like, she has inherited or come yeah. into this life. It is not, quote-unquote, natural to uh-huh. write. Mm-hmm also trace second time in like three weeks that we've had a commentary about how milk is bad for you because of (laughs) course we talked about it on into the dark new year new you on patreon Mm.
2: yes but didn't we also have something what were we discussing where it was like oh like this person's drinking milk because if a in a movie if an an adult is drinking milk it immediately infantilizes them
3: Mm. yes that as well well
0: i mean it's it's kind of odd in a way i mean we're the only mammals that drinks another mammal's nourishment that was intended for its young so there's kind Mm -hmm. of something unnatural Natural about milk, and then you know the, the whole reason that we have this health campaign about it being strong for your bones is because we had a surplus of it after World War II, and we needed to get rid of it. <laughs> uh, so this this thing, the milk that we associate with like health, is actually in many ways a very unhealthy thing. Which is to say nothing of all the hormones that we pump into cattle, right? Yes. So, so I, I think that's interesting too. Just why milk is the the beverage that was chosen? Very much mm-hmm. so. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> I
1: still
0: drink. I am aware. I, 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 I,
2: I am aware. I am aware of all the issues of milk.
1: <laughs> I mean, you could say the same for the fact that we probably shouldn't be eating meat either. Yeah. Right
2: uh, yeah no, but but like like when he said when it's like it's hard in your gut and all this stuff, it's like, no, yeah, that 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 really is all true. Like calcium may be a benefit, but it's like you can get calcium from other sources. But you know what? This is true. You could take a pill for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's fine. I'm still gonna drink it before bed. There we go.
1: Okay. <laughs> So while she's out driving, Carol listens to a radio show that's talking about the end of the world. And then she gets caught behind a truck with lots of exhaust. It's like, dude, you need to get that vehicle checked out because you are just pumping shit into the air. (laughs) And she begins to cough. And then it becomes more aggressive. And then she has to frantically pull over into a parking garage so that she can literally gasp for air.
2: I wrote in my notes in all caps, bitch, pull over. (laughs) 100%. Like,
1: she looks like she's about to lose control of the car.
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. But but this is also, I mean, again, when we're talking about how this movie is scary, Mm -hmm. it is not, again, you're not getting your typical horror movie scares. The movie is not trying to, like, get a jolt out of you, get a rise out of you. But there is something inherently terrifying about being sick and not knowing why or how and what to do next. And when mm-hmm. the higher ups, the doctors, mm-hmm. tell you, you're fine. And it is ter- a terrifying mindset to be in. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I really got into that when I was watching this. And so I, that's why I said I agree with Mr. Craven. Like I think this movie is terrifying, just like not in the way that someone would expect. Mm -hmm. right
1: so that night carol is dozing on the couch and she sees an infomercial for something called deep ecology which is basically a spiritual awareness of the earth and then we see her drinking water she observes her husband sleeping We're, we're given the impression that she suffers from insomnia which could also be a result of the fact that she is not at home in this house she does not feel comfortable in this marriage where she does feel comfortable is outside near the pool where the air is fresh. So I'm going to bring in my one piece for this. Uh, It's a article by Joel Blackledge for bright wall, dark room called on the side of the disease and not the cure and really good piece. Lots of interesting uh, ideas. I'll bring it in throughout. but here he says Haynes maintains a clinical distance from his characters with, things like wide lenses, close frames, long takes. And this allows the exceptional production design to take over both the frame, but also Carol herself, who is dwarfed by garish houses and queasy hospitals. Mm -hmm. And when you start to pay attention, you realize, okay, the long takes we've talked about a little bit, they kind of emotionally distance you. But it also looks like Carol is frequently being eaten by her surroundings. She's so small and insignificant in these giant open spaces Mm. that it's, like, I think it really helps to visually reinforce how small and insignificant she is. And then you match that with Julianne Moore's performance and her
0: tiny voice. And it's
1: <laughs> just like this woman is being put upon by forces so much larger than herself.
2: Mm. And, and you see, uh, if
0: you were teaching this in class, have you have you taught this in class before? I haven't. Um, and, you know, it's. Fun. I taught, like I said, I taught Carol this semester, and I mm-hmm. and I thought, oh gosh, it would have been really great to teach in conjunction with. Um, I, I did teach how to survive a plague. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay and thinking about um basically how how queer people had to become uh scientific scientific experts in their own mm-hmm. right yeah. just to um you know provide some sort of curative and um and how they were informing um the, the doctors uh as to how they should be treated and then to kind of think about this carol's in a similar sort of yes no man's land uh-huh. yeah no oh, she yeah. she
2: she didn't have a um I mean a Louise Hay to go to go rely on
0: <laughs> right <laughs>
1: So the next day Carol has lunch with Linda and Linda mentions that she's starting a fruit diet and she would love it if Carol would join her. To me, this is quintessentially mid to late 80s, where it's like, what fat are we on now? Is it lemons? Is it yellow? Is it purple foods? Oh it's god. just
2: I I just think about all the diarrhea they are having <laughs> from an all-fruit diet. <laughs> like, yeah, right. Oh god. <laughs>
1: So we transition from the lunch to then a work dinner where Greg is with his co-workers and we've got this one dude who's telling a joke about a vibrator that gets stuck in a woman and Carol is the only person who doesn't laugh at this not particularly funny joke. Is she asleep? Uh, She just looks completely out of it. Yeah,
2: she's just zoned
0: out completely. (sighs)
1: which fair because this seems excruciating <laughs> yeah.
2: man I, I i will say though because again like xander berkeley i was primed i was like okay he's gonna be the fucking i know asshole. it's so bad right he's got that face where you're just like well you're an asshole <laughs> and he is but i will say that he doesn't go to the like, he doesn't leave her he, he, right. he is an wow. asshole like he does make her feel bad about things but he does try in some parts so i i was actually very <laughs> sure <I, but> He's <laughs> such a low bar training <laughs> he, he's not as bad as he was in candy man we'll put it that There we go. There we go. He's not cheating on her. He's not sleeping with that we know of. He's not cheating with on her.
1: I mean, I fully choose to believe that he and Rory get on a plane and just exit Carol's life at the end of this film. Like, Man, I don't I, think he ever comes back
3: for her. That but, but Ro- I mean,
0: I could have seen a version of this film where he just sort of leaves her there and gets mm-hmm. sends her the divorce papers at the commune, Yeah, You know? Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think he is a round character, you know, but still an asshole.
3: Yeah. Yes. But,
2: but Rory needs to be jettisoned into space.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Uh, here let me just do it so that all the people who hate me can just get it out of their system now <laughs> this movie has shitty men in it most mm-hmm. of the men in this movie suck
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay so because she did not react uh, you get the impression that things may have been a little uncomfortable at the table so she ends up having to apologize to craig after this and he's like well you know what why don't you go and see the doctor so she goes to dr hubbard who is played by Stephen Guilford. And he says he finds nothing.
2: Do you recognize this man at all, Joe?
1: I feel like I should have, but then not, I was like, I'm not going to look. It up. No,
2: it's it, I, I, I don't. I don't think it's but he He's Mike Brady's boss in both Brady Bunch movies. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't have known that. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny.
3: <laughs> That's
2: it. <laughs> um. So yes, this is where we
1: get the this. In addition to the clean bill of health, this is where we learn a little bit about Carol's eating habits. So she says she doesn't drink and she doesn't do drugs. And this is when she does say she drinks a lot of milk. And he's like, oh, okay. well, that's it right there. You got to (laughs) stop drinking milk and you got to eat more protein. (laughs) It's like, okay, yeah, just basically do the opposite of what you've been doing. That
2: should clear it all up. It's very hard on your digestive system and your intestines. Oh, and stop that fruit diet, by the way. So she's really Mm -hmm. she's on two different she's milk and fruit, which is just diarrhea central. (laughs) Ha (laughs) ha 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 uh it's uh,
1: two back to back episodes, Trace, where you're just talking about <laughs> diarrhea a lot. <laughs> it,
0: it's interesting. you know, I if I'm watching this film today, I'm going like, oh, of course she's just lactose intolerant. Um, right. But I like I'm wondering when we started talking about that as a thing. Um oh, was that talked mm. about in the eighties? I actually don't know. Shit. I don't think so, no. Yeah. Man, oh god. There
1: was I feel key- like the dairy industry had a stranglehold <laughs> on us until like <laughs> it's the early two thousands. It was just
0: like it was just like silk wood, right? There mm-hmm. was no,
2: there was I <laughs> (laughs) Maybe it was a Nickelodeon cartoon or a kid's movie or something that I watched growing up. But there was something where one character was lactose intolerant. And so that is how I knew what it was. Because I remember as a kid feeling so sad, because Mm, this person couldn't (laughs) drink milk. Right, right, (laughs) right. I mean, I
1: I have told people, like, the worst things that could ever happen to me is if I go blind so I can't see movies. (laughs) And if I can't eat cheese because I love dairy so much. And I'm not yes i'm being like super white privilege and like i'm not suggesting those are actually the worst things that could happen to me but i'm just like i i feel like my life would just it would lose a little bit if i couldn't do those two things
2: it's less white privilege if you're talking about the craft single slices of american cheese <laughs> and not a cheese cart that you would get at a fancy restaurant
1: <laughs> but i love a charcuterie
3: board
1: <laughs> okay so we're having another dinner because this movie is also filled with like meals and sources of community where you can also have uncomfortable conversation Mm -hmm. so we're at dinner and we have carol's stepson rory who we've mentioned before he's played by chauncey leopardi and it's like
2: what the fuck is this kid chauncey So, mm-hmm. The Rory thing is so funny. So besides Gilmore Girls, mm-hmm. did you ever watch that? Sh- okay, this is like a, this is a deep cut. But did you ever watch that Christina Applegate show Samantha Who, where she like got she she was a bitch, but then she got amnesia and she became a nice person afterwards? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mm, no. Okay, well, basically she thinks her mom Jean Smart cheating on her dad with some guy, and she finds out how his name is Rory, and she's like Rory. <laughs> it's like a dog throwing up. Rory. <laughs> <laughs> <God>. <laughs> apologies to any rory's listening to the podcast they have rory gilmore which honestly
1: is not a big step up i was gonna say that's not helpful (laughs) anyway rory gives us some some insight into who he is when he's reading a report about gangs in la and then when they're like why are you telling us this this is awful he goes it's how
2: it really is (laughs) It's another very uncomfortable moment in this film. (laughs) It's, yeah, is is there a significance to this scene?
1: I think to me, it just connotes, I mean, (laughs) we just made a joke about it, but to me, it connotes their white privilege and their kind of, they are in the suburbia bubble. They have no idea what real life Mm -hmm. is like. But, you know, like San Fernando Valley is not too, too far away from like Los Angeles, which means we're on the cusp of like huge racial like a period of, of racialized violence oj and all these other fun things happening in this area so i'm to me this is kind of like ah you're very very white
0: well and also like how this kid has these racist views and interacts yeah. every day it seems with the housekeeping yeah uh, you know fulvia. Uh, oh. yeah yes. man, i
2: i fully expected like a fulvia scene like i was like where's her mm-hmm. scene she was really <laughs> doing <made> something <laughs>
0: You know, there's a scene in Far From Heaven where uh, someone is delivering this kind of patronizingly racist speech in the the camera, kind of pans slowly to the help who are all Mm -hmm. African American.
1: Yeah, I feel like in in a later, if this movie had been made later in Haynes' career, I do actually think we might have gotten a little bit more of that kind of commentary. Mm
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Here, like, it's here, but it's just very under the surface. Man, I know we've mentioned Far From Heaven several times, but everyone, if you have not seen Far From Heaven, like, highly recommend it. So fucking good. Maybe watch some Douglas Sirk films first to know what it's doing. Right. But yes. still, it's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so good.
1: <laughs> so... Uh, just in case we liked Greg for some reason, this is also where he says, you know, like she basically says, "This is what Doctor Hubbard said," and he goes, "Oh well, I think I said the same thing."
3: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fuck you,
1: Greg. Not helpful. <sighs> So Carol decides she needs to change her her life up a little bit. So when she's at the salon getting her haircut and her manicure, she elects to get a perm. And folks, this is the only extreme close-up in the entire movie is this, like, brief montage. And I've seen a couple of different people refer to this as, like, one of the film's gross-out moments because (laughs) her hair, like the result looks great you know it's julianne Moore, and she's (laughs) fantastically gorgeous but this looks disgusting the way they're doing it like it looks like fingers in ground beef or or Mm. the earth
2: or something like just the way it's shot it doesn't look right well i've never seen a perm be done so now i'm really happy that i have a visual um from legally blonde of what ammonium (laughs) clay looks like (laughs)
1: exactly remember (laughs) no showers for 24 hours unless you're a murderess (laughs) So she consults her new appearance and, you know, she looks great for a hot second and then she immediately gets a
2: nosebleed. (laughs) Oh, man, this is it's so funny, right? Because it's just a small thing. It's not really I mean, people get nosebleeds a lot, um, Mm -hmm. I think. Uh, But (laughs) this is meant to be like, oh, no, this is bad. This is really fucking terrifying for her. And it's very scary and fucked up. And it's just, oh, God well as we joked in our the pale blue
1: eye episode on patreon trace this is usually a signifier oh she dying
2: (laughs) oh yes i'm sorry um so so what you're saying is a nosebleed in the 80s is the equivalent Mm -hmm. of a cough in the 1800s for consumption correct (laughs) yes
1: So when she goes home, Greg tries to initiate sex and she says that she still has the head thing to which he replies, he doesn't want to hear about it.
2: This, this, all right, to me, this is actually the most unlikable this character (laughs) is in this movie because I was fully expecting that. I I thought he was going to be out of this movie after this, but then no, he stands by her for lack of a better term, I guess. This is horrible. Can can, can you imagine? She she says it even at some point. She's like, I can't help it.
1: Yeah. And she can't. It's the scene. She's like, I can't help it. I'm sorry. And then they just turn off the lights and go to bed
2: but so but I, I actually did really like this though because we we shift from this scene to you know the next morning mm-hmm. and we focus on greg as he's getting ready doing his hairspray whatever the fuck he's doing <laughs> right. and and they just both say i'm sorry to each other yes. and it's like i don't i actually really related to that because have y'all ever had like a fight with your significant other and like the next morning and you, you go to bed angry which you're never supposed to fucking do mm-hmm. you make up this morning like i'm really sorry like because you just seen that breather yeah. i i I don't know, I found this actually very authentic in a, in a movie that's mm-hmm. a bit more, you know... Oh, sure, cool. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and it's one of those things where you think, okay, they can have their petty disagreements, but yeah, like, they're in it for the long haul, they do actually care about each other, and then she pukes on them.
3: Oh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> she ruined the mood, really. <laughs> really.
1: So I gotta bring back in Blackledge for a moment. So, reading the scene, uh, he says, It appears that she is allergic to her lifestyle, so very much mm-hmm. what you said, Andy... Even to her family, her own body is in revolt, making it impossible for her to continue playing this part. So this is a role, and her body is basically telling her, you can't continue to do this anymore. Mm. So back to Dr. Hubbard we go, but he still can't find anything physical. That's the key word. So he suggests a stress-related psychiatric consult. So, she doesn't really say anything, but we we get a couple of scattered scenes about her insomnia. We see her outside, she's smelling the fresh air and it seems like it's helping her. Um, but also she's not even allowed to do this because both Greg and a passing police officer checks on her. Like, "Ma'am, what are you doing? You're acting strange. Shouldn't you be inside your cookie cutter house?" <laughs> <sighs> so we go to a lethargic jazzercise class where carol doesn't seem to be very interested she's not really super responsive in the change room either but she does see a poster on the bulletin board about smelling fumes so uh she investigates by going to visit this guy in this really just dingy sad looking office (laughs) (laughs) and she answers a couple questions about her home life and her work life this is where we get the
2: housemaker as opposed to the housewife i just because she says aren't you supposed to ask me more questions and his reply Mm -hmm. is well no you're supposed to tell me things i'm like okay but (laughs) your patient is clearly a little bit uncomfortable she needs a bit more guidance and i feel like a good psychiatrist would have been like yeah sure let's talk about your fucking life well i
1: i think you're misconstruing who this person is this is like a recruitment officer for like an environmental cult basically wait wait, wait. i'm sorry this isn't a doctor
2: wait i thought this was a psychiatrist oh is it yeah
1: oh i thought that this was the guy uh, okay see i misread this i thought that she was going to see the person who put up the flyer about smelling no, no
2: no 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 so she's seeing the psychiatrist who who her doctor ref- referred her to Right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he says we
1: need to understand what's going on inside you, which is a little bit nefarious, but gross. I think it's a little bit of a test. Like, this movie doesn't like doctors. It has... A- <laughs> I mean, I think it's very heavily filtered through a gendered lens. Like these are all men. They're all kind of talking down to her and telling her, well, I don't really know what you want me to do. Like I'm trying to help you, but we're not finding anything. So it feels to me like just another step in that where people can't really help her and she doesn't know what to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is really common in, like, the female gothic, right? It, mm-hmm. The similarities of this film, for instance, to something like The Yellow Wallpaper are Ooh. pretty strong, Ooh, actually. Yes. They're being infantilized by the medical profession and her husband and kind of devolving into psychosis. It's, you know, there's a through line for sure. For
1: sure, mm-hmm.
2: I, I, I get I mean, sorry, I, I do understand why this scene is here, like why this psychiatrist is acting to, this way to her because that's part of the film's commentary, right. He's a shit psychiatrist. Yeah, <laughs> I'm just like, come on, and that, that also comes from like I'm married to a counselor, so like I mm-hmm. <laughs> every time this happens, my husband's like that that man would not that's not
0: bad. <laughs> <He's terrible. laughs> that's not good. <laughs> revoke his license
1: (laughs) ask more questions of this woman
0: (laughs) but not basic instinct that was right 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 that's That's (laughs) That's a great (laughs) portrayal
1: so just in case we didn't get enough of a sense of how badly she now fits into this life We go to a baby shower for Mm -hmm. barbara who was played by ronnie fairer and um it's just immediately overwhelming we see carol crying in the bathroom and i do love that the way that the door
2: opens and closes is almost like a wipe it's like oh it's like we're editing but we're not wait i'm sorry and to defend my introduction to this episode (laughs) one of these women (laughs) presents a present and they're like and, and she's like oh did you wrap that yourself God, Mm -hmm. I wish I were that creative. Well, I've seen you rap
3: things.
2: (laughs) 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 This is also, so, uh, so, you know, we have this whole baby shower going on, all these fucking moms. Mm -hmm, Carol mm -hmm. goes to the bathroom to collect herself. Right. And I think, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is the only time we get to see people in the movie, like characters, without Carol present. So we're not really Mm -hmm. in Carol's POV, and it's when the moms are gossiping about her. Yes, they're talking shit about her while she's not there. Oh, God. I mean, granted, it's not the worst things they could have said, but it's very much like a we're talking about you.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it speaks to the kind of the need for drama that arises <laughs> when you maybe don't have as many other things. Like, I I remember having conversations with my sister when she first had my niece and she was like, I would kill for adult conversation with another person right now because all i do is talk baby talk all day and i can't help but wonder if these women are like we have all these babies but also our lives are just occupied by like birthday parties and dinner parties and other things like let's talk shit about carol when she's not here
2: i thought you were
0: gonna say that your sister said i would kill my baby if i could (laughs) oh my god no (laughs) Oh, In the Midwest, uh, they had bunko parties, which was their opportunity to get together and play cards and bitch about their husbands. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that. With kids yeah. present? Um, no. No kids okay. present. Yeah. Well, cause I, what, I, what I love about
2: the gossiping scene, too, is that we have this woman who can't stop licking the icing off of her fingernail. Uh, and she <laughs> keeps telling her child, like, give us mommy time. That, and I'm like, oh, honestly, yeah. though, like, it's so necessary. I can't I mean As someone who ha- does not have kids, who will never have kids, like, ooh. Mommy time. Give it to me. <laughs> right, right.
1: <laughs>
2: well, and then
1: uh if anybody needs mommy time, it is Carol because she's like do not put this
2: child on my lap uh, uh, uh,
1: i will have a breathing fit
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. this i mean again you know we, we have like the muffled sound so we, we kind of get, get into carol's head she is mm-hmm. wheezing the child looks visibly uncomfortable with this yeah what's going on what's wrong with this woman this is a really i, I found this a very difficult scene to watch only because i felt it it, it just made me very anxious
0: well, you know, the the child that they pick, of course, looks like a miniature version of Julianne Moore, right? Uh, <laughs> she's, she also has the permed red hair, the dress yeah. is very similar. I think it's to, you know, activate that that fear of heteronormativity that she yeah. has even her that this would be her biological child, right? This is her future at <laughs> this baby shower that she's looking at and having a panic attack. <laughs> a right. she if you're that...
1: not careful, this is where you're gonna end
0: up. <laughs> uh, little does she know that her future is not as
3: bright. <laughs> no.
1: So, again, just in case you weren't making these connections, our next sequence is actually panning across all of these family photos Ooh. at the house. And Carol is writing a letter talking about her health condition. And she's she's sitting in bed, kind of writing this in the dark. And this is when Greg barges in. And he's basically like, Mara, what are you doing? I was calling you and Carpool. you didn't answer.
2: I didn't think you were home. Uh, There's something about Moore's prefer- So She looks at him and she's like, oh, God, what is this? Where,
3: mm-hmm. Where am I? Where
2: am I? Right now. And... <sighs> There's a special feature on this Blu-ray, too, where it's just Julian Moore and Todd Haynes, and they were just having a conversation, you know, 20 years after the movie came out about this movie – Mm-hmm. And she talks about how what she loved that Todd Haynes do- does was he would give her a shot list. And so she would, you know, look at the shot list and base her base her performance on what the shots were going to be. Whereas oh, wow. so many directors would be like, she'd go, where's the shot, shot list? And they're like, oh, I don't, I don't know yet. Um, what do you want to do? And I'll build my shot list up of that. And she's like, well, no, I need the shot list first. So I know how you're going to frame it. So I know how to perform. If we do it the other way, I'm the director and you're not. <laughs> 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 and, and this is one of those scenes too where i'm like oh, these little moments where it's like i just i'm, I'm my heart breaks for her mm-hmm. when she gives lines like this well she seems
1: so vulnerable and you can i think anybody who's ever experienced uncertainty around their own health has had a moment like this where you're just like what is going on i was healthy and now suddenly something has changed and i don't know what it is and i'm scared mm-hmm. and particularly at this point she's been to a doctor and she's been to a psychiatrist and they both are like we can't help you we don't know what's going on either
2: that's terrifying we haven't discussed age much since we started the plot of this but do do we want to talk about maybe like like what carol is feeling and going through is is comparable to people that had hiv and aids in the 80s at the time like the, 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 the social isolation and things like that yeah
0: i mean the, the sort of sheer unknowingness of of, of cure and and um, a lot of um, people with HIV turning to alternative therapies when the medical institutions seem to be failing them
1: yeah I mean the the very next scene after this is when she goes to the first sort of seminar so we transition over to this video that's talking about you know they all have this strange never-ending ailments that their friends and family say is an overreaction and I think it's really interesting that this is actually where Carol starts to form a bit of a community. Like she's able to actually be a little bit more open and free about how she's experiencing the world because these other people are either suffering the same things or they're curious enough to have come out to it. And that does also remind me of like, why it's important to maintain some kind of community even if it's not with your family or your friends you know and i i think that there was a kind of solidarity among gay men the problem was is that a lot of the time if you knew someone who also was suffering from it they may just die unexpectedly and it's not like you just got a phone or or a computer where you could just like reach out and say how are you doing it's like if you don't see them they may just be dead and you wouldn't know yeah um Okay, so one of the things that she can still try is something called neutralization provocation test. So she goes to Dr. Reynolds, played by Peter Crombie, and he basically just jabs her repeatedly with needles with different things to see if she will react to it. And this is where we learn that she does react to milk, and for me this was the hardest scene in the movie to watch they just stand around watching her as she wheezes mm. almost to the point of unconsciousness so that they can get a determination like okay yeah it's this one that's affecting you
2: have you ever been through one of these types of things i have yeah you yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, may i ask what re- what were you related to <laughs> um so let's see it's funny because i they did the the pricks on my arm and, and left, and then came back and the nurse goes whoa that's the mother load oh um, god that's right. not, not what not you, want, what to you want to hear exactly <laughs> wait what so, was it um let's see black mold was my worst one that was a huge bolt um grass and cats and dust mites so uh yeah life dust mites. That's basically a
3: rough, that's a yeah. rough one <laughs>
2: yeah I, I am fortunate enough to as far as i know not be allergic to anything but yeah my husband had one it was on his back but yeah he's allergic to like literally every type of grass
3: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: i've heard of that before yeah mm mm-hmm. Apparently, that's becoming more common in a bunch of kids because, I mean concerned parents will say oh well it's because you know kids aren't going outside enough so when they do touch grass like they discover they're allergic to it because they haven't ever had to develop (laughs) any kind of antibodies and i'm like okay well now you're starting to sound like this movie well
0: it's not that grass was never intended to be there (laughs) it really (laughs) should not exist in arizona or wherever I'm i'm curious so what what
2: about this particular? is it just because it's in a doctor's office where there's people around her and they like they just have to like wait and watch her suffer (laughs)
1: yeah i mean i feel like they understand that she's having a reaction but rather than help her they they just wait to see how bad it is and i think it Mm. plays into my fear that you could still be surrounded by people even trained people who are there to help Mm. you and you would still have to go through and experience this uncomfortable and i mean i'm I'm not afraid of dying, but I also don't like to think about what it could feel like. And this comes close to what I imagine
2: asphyxiation is like. Yeah, I, God, it, when it comes to worst ways to die, um, I feel like burning to death, drowning and yes, yeah, suffocation. Mm. you know we all just want to die in our sleep that's how we want to go right
1: right i want to be that girl from wrong turn four where she just goes out into the wilderness gets hypothermia and dies by a tree like a hundred feet away from a highway
2: okay but i feel (laughs) like freezing to death i guess yeah yeah i guess you
1: would
2: well I, i guess you would you would essentially fall asleep right yeah yeah, okay. I guess that's fine. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, getting, I'm still getting used to the cold up here in Colorado, so I'm like, it's cold. It's okay, Trace. You're not dying. You're not dying. You're
1: just cold. <laughs> and Dee and I are like, bitch, welcome to our world. Right, this is what right. we've been living with exactly. for decades. <laughs> so we do learn as a result of this test that they can find ways to mitigate it so that they can kind of turn it on and off, but they don't have a cure. So they can't make it go away. Something she will have to learn to live with. So we're back in the seminar. Um, Trace, did you recognize Becky? Oh, Beth
2: Grant? Fuck yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Beth Grant. I, 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 j- just like, hey, I love Beth Grant. But when I was in school, in, in college, in film school, quote unquote, um, quote unquote, why did I even say it? Why say school. quote unquote? It was film school. Uh, no, no, no. no but, but 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 I was lucky enough to walk through like, like the main area of the UT campus, uh, UT Austin. And there was like a flyer with Beth Grant's face on it. And I was like. Whoa, what's this? She came and gave a fucking speech, and it was literally to a classroom, because it was just like, come to this seminar if you want to go to it, just to a classroom (laughs) full of people. So I, me, my boyfriend at the time, and one of our friends came, and we all brought, like, I brought Southland Tales- my friend brought Donnie Darko and my other friend brought Sorted Lives and we all had her sign it but uh, this is a character actress who is like yes. look, bef- I know we always talk about Margot Martindale as like character actress Margot Martindale <laughs> Beth Grant is the well not the original character actress but she is the character actress that I grew up with where I, I will recognize this woman from anything and the day she dies I will have like a procession for her in <laughs> my <own> home <laughs> I love so this woman so much so great, great. <laughs>
1: So, yes, Becky is telling this seminar people about basically how to create a safe room, which is a kind of um, an area that is free from these environmental triggers that might be affecting them. And this is where Carol is bonding with some other people. And then, yeah, we we end up going from this, which is like quote-unquote a bit of a safe space mentally for carol where she can talk to people about what's really happening and then she goes to lunch with linda and linda could not fucking care about anything (laughs) that's going on but also i do love that every time we have a scene like this where we're specifically interacting with linda um a lot of the time these lunches there's just cars and traffic and noise and you like you can smell
2: the pollution in all of these scenes
1: and you're like carol get out of there
0: but So,
2: is the Beth Grant thing, is is she meant to be an acolyte of the Renwood people, or is she just a a different kind of self-help thing? I think so. Okay. It apparently was very intentional, by the way, that in these scenes, it's the first time we see people of color in the film. Mm. Oh, interesting. So she has to leave the, the cookie cutter white world and start interacting with other people. But at the same time, I mean, look, I I know we'll talk about this later as we get to the end of the film and whether it's a happy or a sad ending. It's it's not happy, by the way. Um, But it's the same when she's with all these women out after this Beth Grant seminar talking. And they're all they're, again, they're all like validating everything she is going through to the point where I'm like, I just I'm so happy for this character that she's getting to experience this. Even if it's leading her essentially into a cult.
0: Is this the scene where she says that, um, I ate fruit that had touched a newspaper... I think so. Yeah, there's some, there's something about this too, where her she seems to be becoming more and more sensitive, and I think it's it's that this idea of being allergic to her environment becomes her identity, right? And and that everything she's looking for the source. Oh, it must be cologne left on your shirt from another day. It's okay.
2: So I, I don't know if I, I don't know if I said my scabies thing on the podcast. Before, but <laughs> I, I've had scabies twice in my life. It is not fun. Um, it is not also a, me- a, a metric for how clean you are. By the way. <laughs> Um, right. But it's a thing where it's like, okay, you have scabies, you're getting these itches like rashes. It is terrifying because you have to do X amount of things mm-hmm. to get rid of scabies. And there's right. n- the only way to tell if you've gotten rid of them is to keep sleeping in your apartment <laughs> <laughs> and hope you don't... It's the same with bed bugs, actually, where you yep. hope you don't have welts on your body when you wake up the next morning. And it is so stressful and that stress obviously manifests in physical ways and Mm -hmm. to the point where I mean I remember (laughs) um, I did a really bad thing when I was I was running with a girl and she when I was in the town she let a friend come over and sleep in my bed and I. Both of us had, had scabies before, <laughs> and I I told her I was like, well, hey, just so you know, I had a scabies resurgence, so you better tell your friend that uh, <laughs> that she might have scabies, wow. and that was a lie. But <laughs> <laughs> but, but I was mad because she let someone sleep in my bed and didn't ask me. Uh, but she was like, Trace, you can't do that because literally, you t- you say scabies and I start itching my body <laughs> oh, 100%. Fe- I feel, it and th- that is what that is. And so yeah. Th- 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 all of this really spoke to me on my my, my two times with scabies <laughs> my memories of that
3: <laughs>
2: yeah i mean so to bring black ledge back into this
1: he does say we may wonder whether carol really is sick or is she waking up to the fact that her environment itself is built on illness of one mm. sort or another and i i imagine that there are probably people who watch this movie and think she's a hypochondriac like she keeps going yep. to doctors they keep telling her nothing's wrong but she is convincing herself that she is getting worse that she is reacting and that manifests mm-hmm. like it's it's about the mind's ability to physically manifest symptoms right i i personally don't believe that i do believe that she is yes. reacting to her environment mm-hmm. but that's also because i feel like as horror enthusiasts we are primed that when people say something is happening to them they are not lying about it it mm-hmm. is actually happening to them
0: yeah hmm well, I, I I do believe that she's sick, but in the way that it aligns with her being almost allergic to her role as mother and housewife, right. there, there's something psychological going on as well for me.
2: I love that reading, by the way, Andy. <laughs> but there are still physical, there's still physical evidence of yes. her disease all yes. over her body. Like yes. uh, So it's a thing when like, we have the doctor saying there's nothing physically wrong with you. It's like, well, no, no. There's literally something (laughs) physically wrong with right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I think
1: it's because they can't pinpoint what the origin is, right? So they can't say like, oh, well, we did a blood test and your blood test proves that you have early onset Alzheimer's or blah, blah, blah. blah. Like, because they can't find what it is, they say that, oh, well, you don't actually have any physical symptoms. You've got a bunch of like random symptoms but we don't know Mm -hmm. what that is but
2: again that's the fear though right like again like you were having these physical uh, whatever's on your body and Mm -hmm. the doctors are saying well there's nothing wrong with you (laughs) like
0: what what (laughs) the fuck are you supposed to do right
2: well, one thing that you could do is you could
1: unload. So oh, wow. um, loading is the maximum amount of toxins that your body can tolerate. So you could unload by fasting for up to five days. You could do a rotation or a rare food diet, but you can't have any mold-based foods. So no bread or cheese or coffee or booze. And all of this will keep you safe. Very safe, <laughs> safe, safe. Until, of course, you go to the dry cleaners and they're spraying and then you have a a seizure of some kind and your lips start bleeding and you have to go to the hospital.
2: Two things. One, maybe it's because I've watched way too much gay porn, but the word load just (laughs) really (laughs) puts certain images in my mind. And so they keep saying load, 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 load. (laughs) But the other one, a cleaner version. uh, No. So for this seizure scene, uh, I guess right before this movie was filmed, there was a big Los Angeles earthquake.
3: Mm -hmm. And
2: Julianne Moore had witnessed someone have like an aftershock seizure uh, on a subway or a train or something. And so she didn't know what she was going to do for this scene because she'd never seen someone have a seizure before. Mm. And luckily, quote unquote, she got to see someone have a seizure on a
0: subway. And so she mimicked them uh, to do this scene. Wow. I mean, you don't have to go some method. <laughs> you know, we, we did say this film doesn't like doctors, but a lot of what they're saying isn't wrong. The way that we store mm-hmm. st- uh, stress in our body, the way mm-hmm. that it manifests physically. You know, I've had acid reflux for most of my life. I've, uh, I, uh, this is actually weird. I'll, I'll overshare for a minute. Go ahead. Um, no, good. I, You know, I also have had IBS ever since I've started, you know, my, my tenure case. Um, Ooh, so, yeah. so it's like your mind gut connection is so strong. And in fact, I, um, had a seizure when I was, uh, uh, younger, when I was 14 to 17, I would have seizures. They think now that I didn't, I've, I thought I was epileptic for most of my life. What they think now is that I just had extreme panic attacks, um, when I was an adolescent because they started when I was starting to deal with my sexuality and they ended mm-hmm. when I went away to college. Wow. Uh, may, may I ask how old were you when you started to deal with your sexuality? Uh, around 14 right okay when it happened yeah well
2: I mean, <laughs> hey, hey I'm glad, i mean i'm sorry i i mean say so i'm glad yeah. you mentioned the ibs no but i <laughs> i have talked to many um many gay men especially bottoms who were like yeah it's really hard to bottom when you have IBS." <laughs> and i'm like yeah it really sucks <laughs> but like, do y'all have any like that you know of like physical manifestations of your stress because i know for me mine absolutely is i get canker sores in my mouth when i'm really stressed out
1: Oh, sure. I actually, um, when I went away to university, I started to catalog my symptoms based on degree of severity. So my, my first reaction is I start to get hangnails and then I get canker sores and then I start to get like weird fluctuations in like,
0: like my aisle twitch. Huh. Interesting well i mean I think we all know like men know that erectile dysfunction is a oh, result yeah. of stress yeah. and anxiety so mm-hmm. yeah all those things i i since i've been managing my stress better with meditation and yoga and therapy lo and behold my acid reflux is not as terrible as it used to be
3: good that's so, awesome
0: yeah so
1: you would say that you're better able
0: to take loads. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> we'll do. We'll the after dark. Uh,
3: uh, the wait, wait,
2: I'm sorry. For, for anyone who has canker sores as their <laughs> symptom, um, please use alum. It is a is a mineral used in pickling cucumber, anything really, but um, it's really good for drying out your canker sores and making them not feel bad. So that's my that's my uh, TED talk.
0: Farmer's almanac.
2: We
1: yep, we're <laughs> not being sponsored by Big Pickle. okay so late at night one night carol sees an ad for renwood which is a cooperative treatment center run by peter dunning who is played by actor peter friedman and this transitions into a slow fade as carol is traveling through the desert we're entering into the back half of the film and our introduction to this compound community whatever you want to call it is Nell, played by Mary Carver, running out into the desert
2: and just effectively saying,
1: Get out! Stop! So,
2: okay, Joe, again, I don't think you're going to get this, but do you know what we should know her from? No. She is Margaret, the lovely, super kind neighbor who gets bitten by a spider first in arachnophobia.
3: Oh,
0: God. Oh, really? Yes! Okay. (laughs)
2: Because I always get her confused with the bread woman from Seinfeld, but she's not that same (laughs) woman.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they're just both old women aren't they Trace? yeah yeah <laughs> who, who were just doing
2: things in the 90s <laughs>
1: Yeah, so the fact that this cab has arrived on scene means that it is effectively polluting the air. So, of course, this is why Nell doesn't want them there. We'll learn a little bit more about her in a bit. But uh, Carol is welcomed by Susan, who is played by April Grace, and she's given a tour. And she's hugged by Renwood's director, who is Claire, played by Kate McGregor Stewart.
2: I don't know if I want to talk about this now when we get to the actual end of the movie, but I'm so conflicted because I know that this is a cult. I know that this is a lot of bullshit, um, especially once we get, well. (laughs) It's tricky because I feel like here, you're just like, oh,
1: my new age radar is going off. Like Mm -hmm. this is, these are hippies. They're going to practice some new age things. Like if a crystal had been produced at any point, it would have felt right in. But it's when we get the welcome speech from Claire in the chapel. Mm -hmm. And she talks about how we need to have like modest dress and refrain from sex and no talking
2: during meals. I was like, cult. 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 <laughs> no, it's for me, yes, all of those things are signifiers. But it's as soon as Peter gives his little fucking spiel and he walks off, and then this fucking bitch comes up and starts singing <laughs> a song, oh <laughs> my god, it, it's
3: a hymn. hard it's a hymn. exit.
2: Get out <laughs> i was immediately dragged back to catholic mass i was like no yes. no
0: no 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 this is bad don't do I this mean, surely you're not suggesting that catholicism is a cult
2: oh what?
3: yeah but, but, no, no,
0: that's, okay. <laughs> that is the thing so again it, it,
2: i haven't been a practicing catholic in a very very long time but my entire childhood i was and it's it's always the nicene creed again it, it, it's the prayer that everyone says you know the mass where it's like imagine a congregation of people just going we believe in one
0: God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth.
2: It, it, it sounds fucking terrifying.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like you were just starting that, I could also recite it with you. It, it is, it is mm-hmm. the effectiveness of rote memorization and fear. It's ingrained, yeah. yeah.
1: But I, I mean, I think just because I'm, I've become more cognizant in doing the podcast that we do have religious listeners and. I I do feel like often horror films prefer to present a darker side of religion. Right. I think there's something comforting in ritual. And we may look at this practice like Renwood from the outside and say, Ooh, it's given up big cult vibes. But mm. like we don't ever see like the there's no more peril really for Carol when she comes here. Like the the scariest moment for her will be when she gets too close to the highway and she breathes in truck exhaust and she has to go for her oxygen tank. But like she is happy here.
2: But it's the thing, it's like on a macro level, I hate this for Carol because yes, it is a right. cult, it's a religion, it's it's they're they're using her money, whatever. Oh yeah, because this place is also
1: like super rich and fancy. Yes. Like you know that they are just raking it in from all these
2: folks but on a micro level i'm so happy for her because mm-hmm. it, it, i know we haven't gotten to it but it's the part where she walks out and she just hurts sobbing because it's also the first time that she's been had like human contact in this movie
3: mm-hmm.
2: and she's she's around people who are similar to her they're all mm-hmm. in equally bad situations with their with their disease but th- there's a support system there, and so while, again, as a whole, yes, this place is a cult, and this Peter guy needs to go die. Whoa, okay, he got—he's terrible. <laughs> we'll get to it later. But like, but at the same time, the people that are there, like, I- I'm just so happy that she has this support system, even though by the end of the film, she's. Completely isolated,
0: well right. yeah there are people there that believe her right? yes I mean, I mean that's that's a big step,
1: yeah, I mean, I think once again, Peter is on this spectrum of not great men in this movie um he he to me comes off mostly as a bit of a phony, like when we hear yes. him talk and speechify, you're just like uh okay and even the way that sarah introduces him so you know he he gets up on stage to do this welcome address after claire to do this kind of welcome ceremony and it's sarah who leans over and says you know peter is chemically sensitive and has aids so he has incredible insight yes and yeah like it's an interesting way to to introduce this character because he very much seems like sage on the stage right he's gonna lead them to salvation and all these uncomfortable religious undertones but at the same time we understand that he is effectively the one who built this system and all of the women seem very comfortable with him i don't know if that's because he's gay coded Or if it's just like, oh, he actually believes me. He's a man who finally fucking believes me.
2: So apparently, I don't know if it was, I guess maybe in the Sundance cut, or maybe it was after Sundance, but there was a, the shot of his mansion on this compound was excised from the film. What? No. And they... Haynes decided to add it back after the fact to be like oh wait no because people wanted to see this guy's it's hypocrisy. important mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it confirms our suspicions about him but but to me it's so funny to me it's not even the mansion before that it's whenever he goes to talk to Carol when she has her oxygen tank again
3: mm-hmm. and
2: she mentions like oh I might need to move cabins because I'm downwind of some pollution or whatever and he's right. like oh well Claire's really the person to talk to about that yeah. and I'm like, go fuck yourself oh i don't
1: handle the menial tasks you'll have to speak to my (laughs) assistant.
2: and and that's the thing it's like a thing is this a happy well fuck no i'll I'll stop i'll stop until we get to the ending (laughs) (laughs) yeah so after
1: all of this this is the point where carol has her kind of emotional breakdown and i think it's it's actually a really nice moment we get claire acknowledging that her reaction is normal because she's finally taken this big step on her own behalf right so much of the first half of this film is about what carol is societally expected to do she has to go to lunch she has to go to jazzercise she has to listen to stories about vibrators at company (laughs) dinners and here it's like you're doing this just for you carol and it's okay if that really gets you emotionally so Carol writes to Greg and Rory she explains that she thinks this is starting to help but yeah she does have this close encounter with the truck on the highway and she is I mean she's carting around this oxygen tank and she is relying on it the minute she starts to smell something in the air she's got the mask on so you do still get the impression that even as she's writing one thing her condition whether it's mental or physical or something in the middle She is deteriorating or becoming more symptomatic. But this
2: right before this, this whole thing, because it's when she's crying and Claire comes up and Claire just tells her, like, you know, I had the same experience. Mm -hmm. I just looked at myself in the mirror and I said, Claire, I love you. I really love you. And that started making her feel better. And at, at the end of a month, she was able to leave her room. And shortly after, she was walking again. And right. You know, it, it seems like a nice little scene. It It, it is, but it will play mm-hmm. a vital part in the conclusion of this film.
1: Yeah. So the other vital piece, if only for the marketing of this film, and I think that this almost does the film a disservice, Mm. you know, blame the marketing folks, not the actual direction. But Peter stops by and this is where we get a glimpse of Nell's husband, Lester, who is played by Rio Hackford. Not that you would ever know. (laughs) This could be a Martian because (laughs) this is a man who walks around in a full hazmat suit all the
0: time um kind of it's more like a bunch of wool clothing items that he has taped around his body and i and i went back to look at the scene again because there's something just strange about the way that he walks oh Hmm.
1: he he looks like the alien from signs
0: yeah 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 (laughs) i was i was gonna describe it as a baby giraffe with polio Uh oh my god yeah, I mean, we we learned that Lester
1: is very, very ill, and that is the reason why Nell was so confrontational when Carol first arrived. It wasn't really about her. It was like, Lester is dangerously close to dying, and as a result, we all need to be protective of the space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Carol signs up for meal sharing, or sorry, meal prep share, and uh, this is when we get a bit of a meet-cute with Chris, who is played by James LeGrowe. And uh, then Lester dies and he gets taken away by an ambulance <laughs> and everybody's a little bit like, er, okay. Yeah, that flippant delivery of that. Um, <laughs> I I'll- mean, Lester's not really a character. He's more, I don't want to say it's a sight gag, but he's, I think they're, if we're saying spectrum in this episode, he's on the far end of like, oh, Carol, this is where your journey could go. Right. Not if you're not careful, but just like, this is how far it can go.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I, I, James, I'm glad you said LeGros Because I've literally called him LeGros my entire life
3: um,
2: <laughs> As if he's a regular name Himself And Jessica Harper, dude
1: Oh, yes Playing Joyce, who only gets a couple of scenes But I do think it's interesting that We start to get a, an idea of Who these people are like, um, why are they here? So in Joyce's case, she says she got sick because she was punishing herself for her son's illness. So it's very much this idea, kind of like what you were saying, Andy, that our emotional state can literally affect our health and wellness mm-hmm. to the point that it's like, okay, well, are you carrying rage? Are you carrying stress? And so on. Those are going to come out.
0: It's even darker for me because the way he asked the question, if I if I recall, it, is why do you think you're sick?
2: yes.
1: Involved. yes, but, yes. You
0: know, and, and for me that's what I said earlier it feels almost Calvinist right That like what did you do wrong that mm. caused you to you know have this illness and that's that, that, that's the thing I
2: was talking about at the beginning where it's like yeah it, 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 they get the validation here they have people that are just like them mm-hmm. but at the end of the day the entire mentality of this cult is but you were the one that is causing this mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you have to fix it and on a level like look I, I get it yes we have stress induced physical issues that happen in right. our bodies I mean we We all have those things. But that's the cult mindset of like, but you, it's your fault.
0: So we have to keep working on you to keep Mm -hmm. you here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We have to take you through the Scientology levels to clear your blockages.
2: Yes. And so, oh God, it's again, I'm so torn because I'm so happy for this woman by the end of this film, but I'm also so fucking sad. I I am. I didn't cry, but I was like, I was heartbroken (laughs) at the end of this movie. Yeah. So when Greg and Rory
1: visit, that's when we also get some additional insight into Peter. This is when he talks about how he stopped reading newspapers or watching the news because he doesn't need the negative, fatalistic attitude. He's very much talking the talk and walking the walk, but it it's so performative, right? Like this idea that, well, you really are responsible for your own illness, for your sickness, how you feel and so on. And this is the moment where we also, on the nighttime walk, get to see, well, he lives in a fucking mansion. So you know what? You may be bringing your fatalistic, cynical mindsets here, but also he gets to profit and live in that mansion because of your illness. Yeah, Mm -hmm. fuck this fucker
0: well it's interesting too because i said this film feels like it's being was made today um Mm -hmm. not just a sort of relationship to covid and our our fear of of contact with other people but this this sort of like isolationism right that that i'm not going to read the news anymore i'm gonna insulate myself within this singular worldview. yeah um that feels so modern
1: yeah that was the kind of thought process i had when i was watching this it feels to a certain extent like some of these people are burying their heads in the sand like well if i remove myself from society then i won't have to deal with society's ills
0: i mean this sounds like like anti-vaxxers kind of stuff at times this rhetoric right right? you know so
2: so this is a little personal but like so so when the pandemic started uh i I was able to work from home for about a year and i definitely retreated there are certain things i really like about working from home Mm -hmm. and certain things I don't because and the things I don't like is I think it feels it feeds my worst impulses because a lot I'm a very historically a very extroverted person and the pandemic had brought out introverted tendencies i did not know that i had and on top of that what you just said to me about how oh like I let, let's hide from information because like whatever it, th- th- that protects us i found that i even do that i mean like you know with everything on twitter nowadays you know with the, all the musk shit and whatever i'm like you know what i'm on twitter but i'm just gonna ignore that because if i ignore it it's not a problem for me right. and on a level it's like self-preservation yeah but i understand like but but watching this and again even on the bonus feature this blu-ray they talk about that about how oh like these people are wanting to avoid information Mm -hmm. they want to avoid news Mm -hmm. and i'm like fuck i'm i'm doing that to myself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) not to the same extent
1: but but i think we've also we've also talked about this in terms of like protecting yourself like what is the the responsibility of an individual versus you know what what do you need to give back to the community and be aware and that kind of stuff but to bring it back to the loading and unloading idea i think we can also only carry so so much right like so much information so much emotional reactions and sometimes you do need to protect yourself like i'm very much an advocate for if you can help you need to because you have a social responsibility but at the end of the day you also have to be responsive to how you react so like sometimes you do need to bury your head in the sand and retreat and live in isolation in a hermetically sealed igloo
0: yeah and and, i mean gosh after trump got elected i I didn't want to read newspapers for a while i had had protest fatigue um, yeah absolutely
1: i mean i think to a certain extent that's when you acknowledge i have an element of privilege that i can Mm -hmm. afford to do this and not have to deal with it and be on the front lines I mean, I think if we're reading this from an AIDS allegory perspective, Mm -hmm. it's also like, okay, well, Carol is rich enough that she can afford to walk away. She can go and get private health treatments, Mm -hmm. whereas other people would just have to stay where they are and deal with it. Right. So Carol doesn't end up moving into Lester's igloo, and Greg and Rory are there to help, and then they basically say, okay, we're going to fly away. And as Greg touches her, she ends up having to pull away because of his smell. It's his cologne, except that he's not wearing any cologne. He says... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you're like well greg you were a shithead earlier i don't know if i fully believe you yeah
0: more likely it was his uh what, 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 gosh what would have been the 80s equivalent of uh ax body spray like a drink oh my alcohol?
3: god <laughs> yeah yes.
0: uh, okay i'm, I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> a- andy how old are you i'm uh like gosh i have to do the math 45
2: fo- all right, all right, so, so yeah uh was ax body spray a thing when you and no I, were... I
0: think of that associated <laughs> with the late 90s I'm gonna yeah. Say. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah it's very much my middle school my middle school yeah. i, I like all the gym locker rooms smelled like axe body spray (laughs) yeah
1: and the funny thing is is that it's a it's a deodorant not Mm -hmm. an antiperspirant right uh
0: yeah it took trace a long time to figure out the difference between those two things a body spray, don't you dare call it a cologne because that's gay. <laughs> uh, yes! Oh my, god. It, it, it's, oh my oh, god! It's all fragile masculinity. Oh shit,
2: so, yes. What, sure. were, what were the uh, what were those? Like, oh, if you do that that's gay things. Is there uh-huh. one that you remember like having a really big impact on you as a kid?
0: Um, it. I was so afraid of piercing the wrong ear that oh, I just, yeah. didn't, get oh. either, I, I just mm-hmm. didn't get either ear pierced. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Mine was if you think you have something on your foot, you have to oh. bring your foot in front, yep. not like raise it behind like near your butt
2: mine is the uh hey look at your nails really quick and if you hold Mm -hmm. your hand out that's gay you're supposed to do the uh the rewind the rewind the the, the backwards version (laughs) yeah yeah
1: yeah so helpful. All of these mm. things, you know, really instrumental in yeah. helping me to decide, oh, those people are trash, stay away from them.
0: Oh, I remember them with, with earrings, we they used to say left is right, right is wrong.
2: Yes,
1: yes. Oh. And I,
0: <laughs> I remember being so confused that it was the left ear that was the straight one.
2: <laughs> right. That's
0: why I just <laughs> never got my ear pierced at all. I wasn't sure.
1: <laughs> Whereas I just contemplated getting my
2: eyebrow pierced.
0: Oh, <laughs> oh god. Please question your belly button. <laughs>
2: oh oh boy, oh, boy. So, you know, It's not as bad as because when you get your dick pierced, you have to stay hard the
0: entire time. And to to this Moving day, on. I don't, know, I, don't, babe, I, don't I don't,
2: I don't understand. People do. That. I don't understand. Like,
0: how do you do that? And I, and I don't think it's sexy. <laughs> oh, it's <boy>. not. <laughs>
1: so carol and chris are at dinner prep and they're joking and it's very clear like in my mind lester is like the far extreme of one side and then chris is kind of a hey get a divorce from shitty shitty greg (laughs) and end up with this guy because at least he understands your situation right he's also
2: here yeah did i hey did y'all read james legros character as queer
0: um, um wait which one uh, so it's, this, it, this it's is the chris the her, guy. Her, her, oh chris yeah. her, i didn't her, her, her. i i
2: thought he was trying i thought he was hitting on her see i thought same, okay, this maybe this is my like toxic masculinity coming out but like <laughs> it's whenever they're about to do her birthday party it's like, it's carol's birthday <laughs> i was like oh he's gay <laughs>
1: i mean it could be an actor versus character thing too true i don't think he's gay in real life but maybe <laughs> <laughs> well, i don't know Okay, so I do want to have a conversation about Peter's dreams, because after dinner, when we're talking about Lester, we're sort of reminiscing, everybody's sort of like quiet, reserved. And then Peter says he had a dream about AIDS lesions turning into flowers and like sort of floating away. Mm -hmm. And do you think this is just meant to represent his kind of positive mindset? Or is this something more significant
2: well i think it depends though do you think that peter knows he's full of shit or do you <laughs> think that he is like believing all of his bullshit
0: i think he believes it i don't, I don't I think, think so too yeah i don't think it's that type of cult where he's trying to you know hoodwink him um i think that he but you know as an aids patient i mean you've exhausted all of the possible you know medical therapies and what do you have left mm-hmm. so i think he is clinging to this for sure
1: I mean, it's also a dream, right? Like, it's Mm -hmm. the the thing that he aspires to, the thing that he wants. It's also the thing that even if he is bilking these people for money duplicitously, Mm. it still doesn't help him, right? He gets to live in a mansion, but he's Mm. probably still going to die of AIDS. Uh,
2: Yeah, but you know what? Mm -hmm. If you only have, if you have a time clock on your life and you know when it's going to end, you probably want to make the most of it. And you know what? Mm -hmm. Living your life in a mansion for your last two months of life, it sounds like a pretty good deal. Yeah, like if the alternative is... Mm-hmm. i guess i mean i guess so uh, I, i'm fascinated by y'all's response to that because i thought that he was aware of his bullshit
0: okay rate. okay but, but why i mean what what is he gonna do with the money uh, that's bill kick off these people i guess maybe it's my cynicism
2: it's not even mm. his personal game but yeah it, it's just what i just said like he he has a finite amount of time left because of his aids diagnosis so he's gonna make the most of it and live on a mansion in a commune where he's a bunch of people who worship him
0: you know i i think that he's someone who um he has like absorbed the idea that his aids was god's punishment on him and Ooh. now he creates this uh society that they're not supposed to have sex at all oh, right and so uh, that's that's right. my feeling with his character is huh. that that it, that is it's... fucking yeah that's like some self-hatred going on right yeah there,
2: right yeah 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 hmm. I didn't even think about it. I guess I just forgot about the no sex part. But yes, that is a very vital part of this community. I mean, that,
0: I mean, that whole part of it reminds me a lot of Heaven's Gate, right? Where, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. oh gosh, I forget his name. Applegate, something like that. Where he, um, gosh, wanted to chemically castrate himself because mm-hmm. he was so self-loathing of his sexuality. Well, I love myself, so. <laughs> no chemical castration in your
2: future. <laughs> I look in the mirror and I say, you know what? You're pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: okay, so, yeah, we've got this impromptu dance party, and then we bring out this cake for her birthday, and Carol makes this very Oof. awkward kind of rambly speech about how the world is becoming more aware of diseases, <laughs> and it's very nonsensical, but everybody still toasts her.
2: But, 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 no, but, but this whole, because she's trying to use the lingo, the language of the cult, and she's not mm-hmm. getting it right. So right. <laughs> to me, this is also Carol, who, as the entire film has been a blank slate, is trying to make make something of herself. She's trying to be somebody, and right. she's still not getting it, quote unquote, right. Oh,
3: interesting.
2: And that that's what makes this scene even more heartbreaking to me. And you know, she, she she it's so funny because Moore says like during this monologue, she actually did forget her line. So even though there are supposed to be, it's a it's a monologue pepper with ellipses she mm-hmm. did forget her lines at one point. She just kept going. <laughs> right. And it worked. But yeah, this scene, it, it just shows me that, yeah, while, while, while Carol has found a safe place of sorts, she still doesn't know who she is, and I, honestly, the part where she, she opens it with "I hated myself before I came here," mm-hmm. and that was again—it's just like, uh, like I, I really can't articulate how badly I feel for this woman, especially mm-hmm. knowing that there's nothing I can do to make her feel better, because the film doesn't let you know if she ever gets better, right? Yeah.
1: So after all of this, she ends up walking back to the igloo with Chris, and there's a suggestion that something could happen with these two down the line, if you want to read it that way. But as soon as she goes inside, she immediately takes a hit off that oxygen tank, and then we see her... at It's strange because I know that she has had like physical deterioration on her face throughout her time at this commune, but it really becomes starkly clear in this image when she looks at herself in the mirror and tells herself that she loves herself, but it's like, it looks like a combination of sunburn and also AIDS lesions.
0: Can we talk a little bit about like the design of this igloo? Sure. Yeah. Like, I mean, what do you want it, to say? It, I, I mean, it, it's so gray and mm-hmm. utilitarian. It looks like a bomb shelter, right? It does. Yes. Absolutely.
3: Um,
0: so this is where I can't find any comfort in this space, honestly. Mm-hmm. Well, but do you think she does? I think she's accepted
1: it like she has to. Like, this is yeah. her only strategy left. Yeah. Well,
2: it's that thing whenever Greg leaves, and I, her line is, it's only for a little while, and you're just like, oh, bitch. Yeah, you're
1: like, bitch, no, no it's not. This is your new life. This is your life now.
2: And really? I... Yeah, it's horrible. I, it, it, it's so <laughs> sad. I mean, it's she's living in an igloo on a... <laughs> She's isolated from society on a commune and then
1: mm-hmm. isolated
0: from the commune right. in this igloo. Right. Like
1: she
2: is on her way to
1: becoming Lester. Right. And we know how that ends.
0: And you know it has this like one shelf, and it's all yeah. sort of beige clothing and, mm-hmm. and a line of shoes. It looks, yeah, uh, just, it's it's just empty. Like it's not empty,
2: but yeah. it is empty. The bed looks like a hospital bed. Yeah. I do love though, like because before she starts, ta- she looks at the mirror. She's talking to the mirror. She's looking at it, but the mirror is us, and so we're basically like forced to look at a reflection of ourselves. It just happens to look like Carol. I, 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 I th- th- this ending really, really fucked me up in the best way possible. It's I so- love bleak
0: this. it's i mean it's a tomb right <laughs> yes it is yes. yeah
2: she's interning herself and yeah. so I, I didn't look at many reviews of this film but, but one what is um, uh, the famed janet maslin of the new york times <laughs> um but no she really liked the first half of the film but she uh, didn't really like the second half saying uh, that as brilliantly as it begins, Safe eventually succumbs to its own modern malady, as the filmmaker insists on a chilly ambiguity that breeds more detachment than interest. Mr. Haynes make fools of the film's new agers while possibly embracing some of their views. Um, she also says that another problem is that the shadow of AIDS implicitly hangs over Carol's decline, but it doesn't help bring Safe to a conclusion worthy of its inspired beginning. And... To that, so
1: he didn't uh, give me the ending I wanted. Therefore, the back half. Well,
2: of and so I was trying to do some research. You know, apparently, apparently like like the mindset of 1995 was one very much steeped in positivity, which is really tying into the new age mindset of like, hey, like you know, love yourself, you'll get better. Sure. Mm-hmm. So, because the wide the, the widespread belief of positivity was that this non positive ending was really confronting and confusing for a lot of people i
1: mean i can see it like it's it's easy for us to look at this in hindsight and say this movie is a fucking masterpiece Mm -hmm. julianne moore's performance is unparalleled and the bleakness is an inherent like to me that is a strength of the film because it makes me feel so uncomfortable and sad for her like yeah i've struggled to connect emotionally to this woman because she is vacant like she is Mm -hmm. a ghost in her own world and this ending makes me feel so strongly for her, even though I don't think she herself even recognizes it. Yeah I think that's really powerful.
0: You know, in, in going back to Todd's um, uh, Todd <laughs> Salons again. <laughs> so uh, damn it. It. Um, Todd Haynes's kind of interest and love for the the domestic melodrama. I mean, part of what that genre does is it offers women two solutions: love or family, right? Um, and neither one feels satisfying, and both require sacrifice. And I think we get that in, in this as well. There's no. Resolution that it's going to feel fully satisfying uh, for this character. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and th- that's the thing. Todd Haynes put
2: give Julianne Moore's character a happy ending in one of your movies because unfortunately <laughs> she doesn't get a happy ending far <laughs> from heaven either. I would actually argue it's not Todd Haynes, but um, the Hours. She actually yeah. at least does mm-hmm. get a happy ending in the Hours, yeah, I agree. I
0: agree.
2: <laughs> which is pretty good because that
1: movie is filled with unhappy endings. Yes. <laughs>
2: yeah, because because yes. her son grows up gay and dies by suicide because he has AIDS. <laughs> <laughs> Full
1: circle moment. Yeah, uh,
2: <laughs> but yeah. So I mean that that is safe, and I I I did love I I loved this movie so much. I
3: mm-hmm.
2: I don't think I'll watch it often, but yeah. Haynes's direction, Moore's performance, like th- this is a fantastic film. And I I I hope I hope listeners that you went out and sought this out because we were covering it because I just th- this movie does need to be seen.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh sorry, I I stole the first uh final word. Uh, Andy, the <laughs> final word's <laughs> no, <laughs> unsafe.
0: Um, you know, I I was trying to remember back to the the reviewer you were reading, um, about her her beef with the ending what was it again it was just
2: that so he insists on a chilly ambiguity that breeds more detachment than interest he makes fools of the film's new agers while possibly embracing mm. some of their views that's
0: the part yeah but, but I think that's mm-hmm. true I mean I but I don't, I don't understand how that's I don't find that the a bad film. thing yeah yeah it's yeah. not a weakness to uh, because me. I, I think this is um this is what we've known I, I, I'm obsessed with like Nexium cult and all of them I've mm-hmm. read everything about it because he the, the cult leader mixes truth with Lies, you know, um, and and so I think that Todd Haynes does believe some of this about the power of positive thinking, or you know, we we've even had scientific studies about the the power of prayer working, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so there is some truth to this, but I, I think it's it's ultimately how these things become. Unsatisfying in the, in in uh, the, because they can't be a totalizing sort of solution. I don't think I think he's he doesn't know what the solution is exactly. No, a- exactly. Is there one yeah. but, the, right, b- right. B- b- but
2: that's the thing. Like so, so did <clears throat> did they want? Did critics at the time want? Okay, hey, here's yeah. the, what's wrong with you. Here's a sure. solution. You have a happy ending, right? Or
1: an unhappy ending? I think they they right, felt like there right. just wasn't an ending. The ambiguity right. was too much.
2: But that's where we're going to the AIDS metaphor, where it's right. like, hey. In 1995, we, in 2020, we have a happier ending for HIV now. Mm -hmm. It's not a cure, but it's a happier ending where people that have HIV can still live very long, happy, healthy lives. Mm -hmm. That was not the case in 1995. So I find it ironic Mm -hmm. that a lot of these straight critics (laughs) Mm -hmm. are very much like, oh, this isn't really fair. As if it wasn't actually happening to all the queer community, the whole queer community at the same fucking time.
1: Yeah. I yeah. know, but we got Philadelphia, and even though he <laughs> dies, that made me happy because I felt like we were going to get some justice. But that, but that's Ooh. privilege, right? It, it's
2: like these people that's like, oh, we deserve a happy ending for having to go through this. Well, no, because in real life, these people that really were going through this mm-hmm. weren't having happy endings. I'm sorry, yeah. fuck you. Well,
1: and the funny thing is, is that if you do want to disregard the AIDS metaphor piece, if you mm-hmm. just want to look at this as like, okay, you have a chemical sensitivity. It only becomes, yes, I'm going to say it again, it only becomes more prescient as we advance. (laughs) I'm like, (laughs) honestly, we just torpedo the environment to kingdom come. Like, I don't know about you folks, but like, scent-free environments in the workplace and all these other things. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is a direct correlation to the kind of themes that he's bringing up in this film from 1995. Yeah,
0: it, well, yeah I mean, it's, it's like, um, if I wanted to uh, escape capitalism, <laughs> you know, it's like... <laughs> Goodbye, Andy, we'll shoot you right, into yeah, space. Exactly. <laughs> I go become Ted Kaczynski, like, what are
1: my options? You have no option. Yeah, you have to go to Alaska and yeah, live in a cabin. Right, <laughs> and
0: so she escapes heteronormativity right this thing that mm-hmm. she was allergic to but yeah the alternative is isolation right yeah um living in a, a sexless cult right where you deny your the basic functionings of desire in your body
2: and maybe still don't get any better
1: but that's
0: part of the commentary right where it's like hey
2: right. we as a society need to do better we need to be better we can't just ostracize these people that have a disease mm-hmm. because it isn't in, it's
1: inconvenient for us right or it makes us feel weird like oh i don't really know how to respond to that
2: go live in an igloo yeah <laughs> exactly so i mean yeah I, it, honestly like my four star rating for this film went up after this conversation
0: no <laughs> yeah,
2: it's a fantastic movie it's mm-hmm. so good but um yeah. joe any final words by the way
1: um no you know what i think i think we've done
2: a good job of covering it <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right, well, before we announce the recovery next week, I'm um, Andy. first off, thank you once again for coming to help mm. us like parse through some really
0: dense, heavy material.
3: <laughs> this, is, uh, this is
0: one I've been afraid to teach for that reason, so yeah it's fair. been it's been really nice working through it with you guys. Well, let everyone know where can they find you on social media? Right. Um, so Twitter, uh, for as long as it's around, uh, I am Andrew Scahill. Um, uh, if, uh, I've started doing uh, events uh, here in Denver, where I live, called Rainbow Cult, where we do interactive cinema nights uh, in the style mm. of Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, our next one is Showgirls. Nice. Um, if, and And uh, I've uh, started to doing... Um, sort of uh, merch for it and you can find that on a cinema for sodomites.com oh <laughs> sodomite is my favorite anti-gay slur so it's a I, good one i it's don't ever time. hear that thrown around. hey everyone please use sodomite more yes yes <laughs> like, it's hilariously antiquated and all of us are sodomites that's why it's funny to me yeah <laughs> <laughs> legally we're all sodomites
3: Ooh, ooh,
1: let's have somebody uh if anybody knows how to do like change either a, a gif or like something <laughs> like that for justin long's character in barbarian instead
0: of what oh, up yeah. esler do like what, what up, up Sodomites? Sodomites. <laughs> be yeah my logo for it is just a camera lens <laughs> so if you see it you see it it's that kind of thing voyeurism <laughs> and buttholes <laughs>
2: Well, if you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at HorrorQueers. Shoot us an email at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. Find us on Letterboxd to keep track of all the films we've covered. Or go to our YouTube channel to watch us interview uh, various filmmakers and talk to our peers about hot-button horror issues. Uh, If you want to chat with other listeners, please join our Facebook Horror Queers group. If you want to show us some love, please rate and or review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you want to show us more love via money, please go support the show by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash horrorqueers. This month, we've got episodes on the horror anthology sequel, Scare Package 2, Red Chad's Revenge. Netflix's Edgar Allan Poe murder mystery, The Pale Blue Eye. Uh, Skinamarink, the found footage horror film that uh, was pirated a lot last month that shouldn't have been. And Megan, the film whose trailer took the world by storm last year and will hopefully still be really, really fucking good. And we've also got an audio commentary on Cloverfield in honor of its 15th anniversary. Yeah, the anniversary ones are tough because they remind you how fucking
3: old you are. <laughs>
2: yes. Constantly. 15 years for Cloverfield. Ugh. Right? God. um, J- Joe. Yes? Oh, what are we talking about next week? So uh, speaking
1: of the female gothic, we're going to dip our toe into Guillermo del Toro
2: territory. Talk about some Crimson Peak action. This is a movie that I feel like a lot of people were really bummed by because they thought it was going to be a very straightforward horror film and not a uh-huh. gothic romance. <laughs> yeah, and also
1: Jessica Chastain is a big old bisexual incestie.
2: <laughs> and she completely owns this movie. Oh, she's fantastic. Yeah. Until next week, then y'all, we can cross out safe. Indeed. And cross out horror
3: queers.